Welcome and hear, hear. This is Hear, Hear, my audiobook podcast. I'm Dan Masterton, and I'm reading to you from my fiction story, What There Is to Be Done. I'm excited to share this with you one chapter at a time. If you're interested in getting your hands on a paperback copy of the book, visit my link tree at linktr.ee slash danmasterton. That's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash danmasterton. Just follow the directions and complete the form, and I'll send your copy. You can also check out my other writing there. If you're interested in reaching out, I'd love to hear from you. Find me on Twitter at thisladdan, or drop an email to dmastert at alumni.nd.edu. All right, you hit play, so it's time to hear here. If you're driving or running or working, I'm glad to be along with you. Maybe grab a drink later? If you're somewhere safe, raise a glass and toast a blessing to our Catholic schools, our students and teachers, and our imperfect but faithful endeavor to teach the faith. I'll join you. Hear, hear. Cheers and enjoy. Almost two weeks had passed since Teresa's job review, if you could still call it that. Ultimately, they had hardly talked about her current job. Her baseline piece had done well to keep her steady and calm both before and after, but the nerves and racing heart during the conversation were very real. And the rapid burst of adrenaline from that very real conversation would still pop up from time to time as she thought back on it. Francis had said the word, she thought. She wants me to do this job. But when she thought back to the meeting, she couldn't get over how short it was, or at least how short it felt. Teresa couldn't exactly name what else she thought needed to be said, or would have been said with more time. Well, at least besides the litany of questions and curiosities she would have happily explored. But there was something about how abrupt it felt in hindsight that Teresa couldn't shake. And it wasn't that the offer was disingenuous or shaky or anything. She had bumped into Francis just a few days ago, and Francis even reinforced. We'll touch base in a couple weeks. Hope you're thinking good thoughts. It was just the usual sort of ambiguous or ambivalent vibe that Francis could give at times. She was warm and pastoral and concerned about her employees as people, but she just had this bit of a clumsy, rushed, scattered streak. It left you feeling like you needed to infer something beyond what was said and done, but that something remained too nebulous or unclear to know exactly. And underneath her kindness and courtesy, and then even under another layer of sound, compassionate care for everyone on a human level, there was still this inner core reality of her role as an administrator. No amount of authentic strengths on the outside could shield her from sometimes having to sort through tough decisions on hiring and firing, budget cuts and reallocations, staffing assignments, and the reasons why they pay you the big bucks stuff. While Teresa was left to noodle on all of that indefinitely, there was also the more pressing, concrete, and specific question. Would she accept the job? That's where she was sitting mentally on Sunday morning. She and John liked to sleep in a little bit and lounge around with their breakfast for a few minutes before Mass. They went to the nearby parish, Transfiguration Catholic Community. There were Masses at 8, 10, and noon, and the 10 o'clock Mass sat just right in their lazy morning. Maybe if they broadened their radius out further, they could have found a slightly younger or slightly more lively parish, but Transfiguration was just a 5-minute drive or a 20-minute walk on a nice day. They were grateful for the quality liturgy, kind priests, and friendly community. And over time, they always hoped they'd engage more specifically and actively. Someday. On this particular morning, Teresa had grabbed the freshly brewed coffee that she had set up last night to delay brew for their 8.30 a.m. pajama breakfast. John was prepping toast for two as she jazzed up their coffee with milk, flavor syrup, and air from the frother. Black coffee was for monsters, she thought. Teresa brought the two mugs over to their little Eden kitchen area. She set them down and took her seat, 
sitting down normally at first before pulling her bare feet up to the chair to make herself into a cozy little ball to eat her breakfast. John brought the two plates to the table and grabbed the blanket off the back of an empty chair to throw over Teresa's compacted body. She delicately wormed her hands free to munch into her toast. All right, let's spell it out, John started. Last week, Teresa went to Mass with no spiritual agenda. It was a good time just to immerse in Mass without expectation. She was glad she did. It helped renew and reinforce the peace that had carried her through the year. This week, she wanted to bring something more spelled out to the altar with her. She wanted the graces of Word and Eucharist to be seed that fell on tilled soil. So she had asked John to play pros and cons with her before Mass to help prime her. Directing student life means you become an administrator, which starts a new chapter of your education career, but sort of wraps up your time as an active classroom teacher. You can still think and act like a teacher in some things and in some areas of your mindset, but you're not going to be planning, grading, test prepping, and building in-class relationships like that anymore, John said. Right, it also means that I probably can't be a moderator anymore. I'm sort of moderator of everything and nothing. I'm kind of a part of each and every club, but also sort of a part of none of them. And if there's any issues where a group gets left without a moderator, it's on me to fill in or find a replacement for those students. So I'm kind of losing my yearbook crew and my theater kids, but perhaps more so just now relating to them in a different way, Teresa added. I think that's right. And there's also the layer of working from 30,000 feet above everything versus being boots on the ground, John continued. With teaching and moderating, you're involved in the nitty-gritty day-to-day sort of stuff. In administration, you need to be more focused on strategic planning, recruiting, supporting and resourcing, etc. So you might miss the grind and the chance to control small details, but you might also be glad to be freed from some of that, too. On the other hand, you might be intimidated or overwhelmed by the big picture things, but it's an opportunity to be creative, ambitious, and dream big. John didn't end with an upward inflection of supposition. He had some conviction about the upside here for his wife. What do we think about my aspirations of adding a house system, Teresa asked. I've always hoped the school could shift there, but it never seemed like something I could pitch Joanne and Francis on. Okay, play this one out. Pros, it sets a new framework for what the baseline camaraderie is, shifts things from classes toward a mixed-up four-year group in each house. I don't think that's a huge problem at MMOG, but I think part of strategic thinking is preempting things before they become problems and improving things that are good but could be great. We could restructure student councils to create a different pipeline for underclassmen. We could jack up pep rallies and student spirit and service and justice with house competitions. We could tie houses to sports and supporting our teams. We could incentivize good grades, attendance, behavior, and involvement for part of a house point system and a house trophy with major spoils for the winning house. Okay, okay, John cut her off. I know there's a lot of pros. I know you've thought through a lot of the exciting parts. What are the cons? Cons, Teresa nodded, pivoting. People who are tied to status quo or certain traditions will fight it. It turns class versus class stuff and student council formats on their heads. It adds competition as a way to increase engagement and excitement when some people would prefer we just be united or stick to the old ways. There'll be a lot of bureaucracy and communication and salesmanship to get major buy-in. There's going to be costs in creating house gear, getting house costumes, buying a trophy, etc. There's... Okay, that's good on that too, I think, John said. Teresa was a smidge annoyed. She could go on for a while and sort of wanted to, but Mass was getting closer, and John needed to squeeze in a shower before they got changed and left. He also embraced his role as the table setter in this sort of conversation with his wife. The gift bearers just put the bread and wine in the priest's hands, but the Holy Spirit makes them Christ. John continued, I think we could dig into tons of avenues with how the job works and fits in the school and what you might or might not try to do, but we got to talk about home life too, yeah? Absolutely, Teresa agreed. 
This was just the less pleasant part to her. She knew the question and its importance, but didn't have a fire hose of a reply this time. When she thought about the parameters of the job and of what she could do, it felt like a no-brainer to at least try it. She loved teaching, especially now getting to do A-push, but she theoretically could always go back to teaching. She may not be able to walk right back into an ideal situation with a great department chair and her favorite teaching assignments, but there was mostly always an opening somewhere at some Catholic high school for a social studies teacher, she reasoned. There isn't always a chance to take over student life for a whole school, especially one she knew and liked and saw the even greater potential in. So professionally, Teresa felt pretty sure that this was the right move, at least on a trial basis, if not also for the longer run. But the considerations for her personal life were a bit trickier to weigh. Teresa could hardly ask for a better partner in this journey and this discernment than John. Her husband certainly wasn't perfect. John could be a little prone to playing the martyr, to falling on the sword to smooth the path for others. On a related note, he sometimes would decide what he was feeling and thinking was too much to burden another person with, and instead just sit on it. Teresa had loosened him up over the years, but still wanted to help him bust out a bit. Either way, he was in his element when he could swoop in to cheer Teresa up, talk her through an incident at work, or help unpack a big crossroads. And that came in handy, especially right now. Teresa was so grateful for his diligence and patience and compassion in talking this out. He really helped her get at the professional intrigue and excitement that could await. But when it came to personal implications, it was going to be a bit harder. Could she get John's full, authentic, candid emotions about it? Would he be so focused on unpacking her emotions about it that he'd downplay or set aside his own? Teresa wanted to try to use the pros and cons exercise to draw out more of his personal opinions about what this all could mean. She took the plunge and began a fresh reply. Low-hanging fruit first. It'd mean more time working and more time at work. I wouldn't have to plan and grade like I do now, but that'd probably be more than replaced with extra events. Saturday night dances, weekend performances, club field trips, and competitions are all sort of dependent on me. So I think I could still find a work-life balance and establish new boundaries, but it'd be different, and the ratio would slide toward work more than now, I imagine, Teresa started. You also would be working year-round, John added. It complicates the way I've taken some chunks of vacation in the summers to line up with your academic year break. We've taken some fun trips. It'd be tough to lose that. True, but the vacation package is different. Teachers are on 10 and 2, Teresa explained, a shorthand for the two weeks of sick time with two no-questions-asked personal days in that bucket. But admins, I think, just get straight vacation, maybe three or four weeks. I'll look into it, Teresa promised. And also, the pro there off the pay scale, and over to administrator pay. No more worries about columns and rows and professional development units. Higher salary, not a bad thing, John admitted. Okay, but I'll admit the cons. Mary couldn't diagnose me for sure, but she and the midwives acknowledged that stress can have a negative impact on regularity and fertility. Who knows the correlation or causation there, but I would guess that at least in the early going, if not indefinitely, there will be greater stress on me than now, Teresa acknowledged. What do you think? John took a breath. I don't love it, he confessed. It's been hard to have been trying for a little while now and not to have even gotten a positive pregnancy test yet. We both want to be parents and it just hasn't happened. Are you okay, she asked. You know, I am okay. I think a generation ago, when infertility and such were kept a little quieter, it might have surprised me when we struggled. But I think we're just more aware and more open about the process and how common infertility and miscarriage and other problems that really are. And then to know people who have gone through it, that your mom once had an early miscarriage and that it took my parents a few years to start my family, it helped me pre-adjust and be more prepared. So I've been disappointed, but 
haven't lost hope or gotten too down about it. Well, that was easier than I thought it would be, Teresa thought to herself. So glad he can be honest about it. She was proud of him, especially for the sensitivity he volunteered. I will admit, though, I'm starting to wonder if I'm the problem. So much focus is on the mother and her reproductive health and conception and carrying. What if the problem is on my end, John wondered. It could be, Teresa said, but don't think of yourself as the problem, and I hope you don't just let this become a problem that needs to be solved. We're a married couple. We share a married life. This is a part of it that we'll keep holding and walking through together, and I have faith we can keep smiling and laughing and hoping and maybe crying together. John smiled. He wasn't getting choked up, but the magnitude of parenthood and his desire to be a father interrupted the pajama-clad coffee-sipping vibe for a moment with some different oomph. I'm with you, kid, he said. So who knows how big a factor stress is or will be, Teresa said, a bit begrudgingly propelling the conversation forward, when she wouldn't have minded basking in the vulnerability for a bit. I think the main thing is acknowledging that more work hours and more different new responsibilities could jack that all up. Confronting that now would give us better chances to deal with it before or when it comes up, Teresa said. And when it comes to boundaries and balance, I have every bit of faith that you will figure out ways to manage it well. I know you're not someone who lives to work, you'd rather work to live. So as much as you might love your students and the clubs and the school, at the end of the day there's a line at which you leave that all behind so you can come home and just be, John said affirmingly. You've always been a model for accountability and diligence while also limiting the sprawl of your work. That actually really helps me feel good about it, Teresa affirmed. I do try hard to do that well, and so much of it is to be fair and respectful to you and to our marriage. I love that you noticed that. Teresa took a second to collect all these thoughts, started to nod to herself, and was feeling good. John helped her every bit as well as she knew he could and would. It was time to dismiss his bedhead to the shower to clean up for mass. Get out of here. Go shower. I'm just going to change and do makeup, Teresa said. We'll get back to the book shortly, but first, sometimes making decisions in a household can be so tough. Too many choices, too much indecisiveness, no clear process. There must be an easier way. It's the Papal Conclave, Home Edition. This kit comes with everything you need to bring the pomp and circumstance of the Vatican's inner chambers to the mundane decisions of everyday life. Where should we eat? Who should pay the bill? You'll get parchment and quill pens to carry out secret ballots, the red paper thinking hats to cut out, assemble, and wear while you think, and the chemicals to burn your ballots into white smoke or black smoke. Buy now, and we'll include the limited edition white hat to bestow upon the one who put forth the winning suggestion. The Papal Conclave Home Edition. It's the infallible way to decide. I'm not on Instagram, and I'm a selective poster and moderate lurker on Facebook, where I share the Restless Heart blog posts. But I'm most active on Twitter, where I actually really enjoy the Catholic presence of many thoughtful and faithful people. I want to recommend a few of my favorite follows to you here. This week, I invite you to follow Michael Laughlin. Mike tweets at Michael Laughlin. M-I-K-E-O-L-O-U-G-H-I-N. Mike is the national correspondent for America Media and host of the America podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. His articles are a great way to keep a finger on the pulse of the church in the U.S., especially as it relates to more local and community stories. He also passes along a lot of great notes and extra info as he shares other stories from around the church. Mike's stuff will keep you up to date and thinking about a lot of the most relevant stuff in the church today. Follow Michael Laughlin on Twitter at Michael Laughlin, M-I-K-E-O-L-O-U-G-H-I-N. In 
the flash of a half hour, Teresa and John were out the door, over to Mass, parked and walking in with two minutes to spare. John hated being late to Mass, so over the years, Teresa had learned to make sure her butt was in the seat of the car no later than ten to the hour. They had been going to Transfiguration since just before they were married, though their wedding was back at Teresa's childhood parish. This was truly their adult parish, where the onus was totally on them to get involved and belong, a work in progress, to say the least. They knew the hospitality ministers' faces and tried to learn their names off their name tags, but they didn't put in the FaceTime or exchange enough small talk to really be ingratiated with those dear gatekeepers of the church. Teresa and John were weekly mass goers, but they didn't always make it to their preferred 10 a.m. mass. Some mornings they were extra lazy, which meant coming down at noon, while other weekends got complicated with family plans or Teresa's club stuff and kicked them to Saturday night anticipatory mass. They generally knew the crowd at the 10, but they didn't have a virtually assigned seat or people they always ended up sitting beside. They usually came in the main doors, skirted past the assembling procession with a flimsy wave toward the priest, and headed toward the middle back on the left side. There were some familiar faces week in, week out, but they struggled to get any traction in connecting with anyone. Nonetheless, they appreciated the parish. At 10 o'clock, they stood with the cantor's invitation to sing, and Teresa, John, and a whole bunch of Catholics started belting, Jesus Christ is risen today. Teresa was at a point in her adult life and adult faith where she wasn't expecting a special reading to jump out of the lectionary and reveal some as-yet-unknown truth. She was certainly open to things sticking out to her as she lived and prayed through this, this discernment, but she didn't come to Mass this Sunday expecting some inspired, miraculous occurrence. Teresa just wanted to plop down in her pew, sit in the midst of the community in the Mass, and just be for an hour. That Sunday, the readings were just the nudge she needed. They told of Christ being the cornerstone that was rejected, but nonetheless became the cornerstone and the time-tested narrative on the road to Emmaus. The Easter passages reinforced the constancy of community life for her. The centrality of Christ in her life, in her school community, and in her parish was a steady, unchanging presence. And on this particular hearing, the arc of the journey on the road to Emmaus invited her into the movement from astonishment to sharing to listening and finally to communing. The disciples on the way covered a lot of emotional ground before finally reaching their greatest clarity when sitting down in hospitality for a meal with Jesus. Their parish's priests usually did a fine job with homilies, a little humor and hook, a lot of thoughtful contextualization and connection to living one's faith, and certainly some challenges and questions for their parishioners. But this week, as Teresa sat down after the gospel, her dear priest never had much of a chance to reach her. The disciples on the road had pointed her to a prayerful mindset that would sort of end up as a self-homilization. Teresa's imagination drove an inner monologue that became a dialogue with God. God, I see such witness in the disciples walking with the risen Lord. They've experienced so much and are processing so much, and today I really see myself as another one walking on their way. I've been in that level of surprise and shock at news. I've been at that level of sharing with John and others. I've been at that level of listening to Duke and Francis and my husband again, and I want to reach that level of community life. It's so fitting that in a few minutes we'll gather around the altar in its Eucharistic prayer because I feel so drawn to that reality of community. Our parish and my school's community life are focused on communion with Christ and with one another. I think the disciples find both relief and excitement when they realize that their moment of hospitality and community with this man is actually a close and intimate encounter with the risen Lord. And I think part of that excitement is that there was a joy, even in their reaction to the passion, that they couldn't figure out and understand as it happened. It was so big, so different, so impactful. 
It would change their course and indeed set them on a path of encounter with Christ after he rose. I think I've come from a place of intrigue and curiosity, for starters, and a place that was underpinned by joy I didn't yet understand or feel as I was starting to discern. I think it's only been in so many faithful conversations and moments of prayer that I found my way to the joy of walking all the way to the table with you. It feels like this Sunday is a moment when I can realize that this whole process of learning about myself, my career, and my simultaneous vocations to school ministry and to marriage and family life has been a walk with you all the way to the breaking bread. Today that happens in the Mass and the Eucharist. In personal life, it means keeping you close and front of mind as John and I pursue parenthood. And I think in professional life, it means shifting my time and attention to student life, to a broader and more intentional focus on building community with and for students so that they can build communion with you and with one another. John was plugged into the homily, and he noticed that Teresa, whose head was a bit bowed and whose eyes were still open but distant, was not. He gently placed his hand between her shoulder blades, not to project heavy affection, but just to remind her that he was there beside her. Lord, thank you for all the graces in this journey. Thanks for the people and the conversations that helped me understand your invitation. Thanks for the patience and clarity to confront the hard stuff. Thanks for helping me to be honest to emotions, but not obsessed with clinging to hurt. I know the peace that I found and lost and found over and over again comes from the closeness of the Holy Spirit. I will need to stay close to you if I'm to faithfully attempt this juggle. And I know that even without a blinding light or a Eucharistic miracle, you will be with me in the smallness. Teresa gently looked up. I sure did all the talking right there, she thought. Yet her heart had walked to a place of grace and revelation and ultimately ended at a destination of gratitude. She enjoyed basking in that happy place as her eyes readjusted to the light and reappreciated the constancy of the faithful gathered around her. As she glanced around and wheeled back toward the priest and the ambo, her eyes caught the light from the stained glass depiction of the transfiguration. The dazzling white glass of Jesus's resplendent garment shone with immaculate brightness with the morning sun, and Teresa remembered the disciples. Their temptation? Build tents and stay set apart. Their charge? Go back down with the transfigured Christ and continue spreading the gospel. Teresa honed back in to present reality on the tail end of the homily. What happened in the breaking of the bread wasn't necessarily some sort of Eucharistic miracle. It was more so the ordinary ability of faithful witnesses to see what has been close to them all along, the priest concluded. He took a beat and then descended from the ambo to take his seat for a moment. Teresa was sort of extra delighted that she had managed to preach to herself with a conclusion not horribly unlike what the priest had shared with everyone. Solid job, me, she laughed. From the mountain to the road, the constancy of the gospel astounded her. One of the fruits of good prayer can be a lessened sense of urgency to keep praying, a relaxed need to press and pray hard. As the petitions rolled into the gifts in preparation of the altar, Teresa was breathing easy and just taking in the liturgical movements. Time to step back from her filibuster and do some listening. She was delighted to have the children's choir providing a, a reflection song for the prep time. She loved seeing the mom, dad, and kids who teamed up to bring forward the bread and wine. She was delighted by the permanent deacon, a married man and dad, who helped prepare the altar. And she relished the junior high girls in their ill-fitting white robes as they dutifully served the altar, facilitating the movement of vessels and washing of the celebrant's hands. There was a natural community feel to the Mass that was magnified to Teresa in her calmness. 
and it was that flow of organic communion that she desired to contemplate and build stronger at her school. Teresa's grin was getting a bit dopey as the Lord's Prayer gave way to the sign of peace. John kissed her cheek and smirked at her serenity, which he suspected to be authentic, but nonetheless a little funny to visually behold. Teresa offered some handshakes and waves to those around her, soaking in the kids of many ages, the adults of so many stripes, and the dogged fidelity of the elderly parishioners, all crammed into one church's worth of pews. Teresa and John knelt down for the final moment of the Eucharistic prayer. Teresa completed a scan of the pews around her and fixed her gaze on the elevated host and chalice. Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb, the priest announced. Teresa was digging it. She wasn't feeling a flighty, flimsy high. She was just feeling delighted by the seeming mundanity. It was a morning to see the risen Lord in the Eucharist, to receive Christ there, to see Christ in her husband who walked with her always, and to witness to Christian community and everyone gathered there and everyone they'd go to meet after being sent forth. As Teresa and John went forward to receive communion, little moments were popping out to Teresa. Across the aisle, she saw the classic gentleman move, a dad stepping out first and shepherding his wife and kids out into the line before following behind them. A few people ahead of them, she caught an eight or nine-year-old turning to ask questions to his mom, who lovingly turned him back forward toward the Eucharistic ministers and responded to his questions by pre-placing his right hand under his raised and flattened left hand to properly receive the body of Christ. As they neared the front of the line, Teresa chuckled in her mind at the diversity of ministry. There was the old veteran minister who was dishing out Eucharist faster than she could grab it from her chaborium. There was the young adult man who, if he wasn't already a seminarian, sure dressed and acted like a seminarian, rocking his sizable crucifix necklace as he very diligently presented each host to each recipient. There was the high school girl who was perhaps a bit indifferent to the full reality of what she was doing, but nonetheless dutifully and respectfully served in this ministry. And then there were the priest and deacon, the faces of liturgical constancy to a parish of men, women, and children coming to be fed. The body of Christ, the deacon said to Teresa. She was already smiling. Her smile widened. In the breaking and sharing of the bread, she was seeing so many threads of Christ in his communion with them all. Amen, she responded, taking and consuming the host. She proceeded to receive the blood of Christ, sipped through a gentle smile. And as she turned the corner to return to her pew, it was Christ behind her smile and in her heart, not like a burning bush or pillar of fire, but in a morsel of bread, a sip of wine, and a community of word and sacrament. After Mass, they hopped in the car to head home. Teresa set the bulletin down over the middle divider and reached for her seatbelt. Thanks for coming to Mass with me, John, she said, kissing his cheek. Let's get some coffee and donuts, he said, shifting the car into drive. He had obviously backed their car into a spot to facilitate a smooth exit. The whole morning reeked of routine and familiarity, and that was where the grace was coming from for Teresa. Well, that's all for this week. Remember, if you want to grab a paperback copy of the book, visit my link tree at linktr.ee slash danmasterton. That's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash danmasterton. Just follow the directions and complete the form, and I'll send your copy. You can also check out my other writing there. Finally, thank you for listening. May God bless you and all our Catholic school communities. And to you and your prayers and toasts, hear, here.
The guitar instrumentals on this podcast are improvised and performed by Jason Pham. This book and podcast are copyright Dan Masterton 2021, all rights reserved.